Amen. Well, good evening, everyone. And if you would, grab a Bible. If you don't have a personal one, there's plenty of pew Bibles. And turn to the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 1. Romans, chapter 8, verse 1. I'm excited to see all of you out tonight. And I am grateful to the Lord for His Word. I uh, am praying about what book to be in next as uh, we're entering that fall season where there's some Wednesday nights we don't meet. And then there's some gaps and there's some other ministries that happen, like the D-Now, some things take place. So I'm praying about what the best thing to do is. Also, I'm going to be doing my uh, project curriculum here sometime soon. And so one of these Wednesday nights, I'm going to have an uh, advertisement for that, asking you to join and basically be a part of my project. Help me get my doctorate degree if you're interested. So I would love to have you for eight weeks, uh, one hour a week. And uh, at, a, at a good time, and uh, I think it's going to be useful. So I'm kind of still praying about when the best time of the week to do that is and scheduling. So, uh, But we're going to look at one text tonight, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And it's a quick verse. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for this word tonight, Lord, that, that tells us that past mistakes that sin, even now, which is tempting me away from your righteousness into evil, Lord, even that sin right now, Lord, does not condemn me if I am in you. Lord, I'm condemned because of my sin, but you, Jesus, you took that payment on the cross. That's what your sacrifice was about. And now I can stand blameless before the throne of God because of you, Jesus. And Lord, we worship you tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, there is therefore now no condemnation. Paul, who wrote this book by the leading of the Holy Spirit, is a Jew of Jews. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he calls himself. He used to hunt down Christians and persecute them until Jesus saved him on the Damascus Road. Paul knew the Jewish law. He knew the Jewish law. And the Jewish law said if you did not keep every ounce of the law, every little rule, every little jot and tittle, as the King James Version says, then you were condemned before God. And we're not talking about condemnation that even we would think is serious, like a life sentence in prison, or being sentenced to execution, or even uh, going to the chopping block. We're not talking about that kind of condemnation. That itself, however terrible, is a short condemnation. God is talking about an eternal condemnation that never ends. The Bible says in Revelation that they are cast into the lake of fire, they are tormented forever and ever, and the smoke continuously rises over their torment. This is the condemnation that hangs over you and I. And it hangs over us because of Romans chapter 3, which says we all fall short, we all have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone has. There is no room to say, well, not me, I'm better. Or I didn't make those mistakes. Or I didn't do that. You too are included in this category. In fact, turn to Romans 3. And let's just explore a little uh, verse here in verse 10. Now he's quoting the book of Psalms. In verse 10, Romans 3, it says, None is righteous, no, not one. None who understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become as worthless. No one seeks for God. No one is good. There is no one who wants God unless God intervenes in their life beforehand. 
without God intervening, you and I would continue to sin and enjoy it and go off the cliff into the lake of fire. We would. There's no way to be convinced. There's no way for some great razzle-dazzle preacher to get up here and get you emotional and get you down to the front and make you do something that's going to lift that condemnation off of you. Only Jesus Christ and His gospel can lift this condemnation off of your life. Off of your soul. What else does Romans 3 say? Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Have you ever smelled something dead on the side of the road? I know when we have funerals, we have wonderful morticians who, who prepare the body and, and, and prepare it for the viewing and the burial. We don't really see human death like that, but you've certainly seen possibly an animal killed or a deer. What about that smell, that smell of death that suddenly comes in through the car window or if you're walking, you smell it and it's so repulsive, right? I mean, you want to get away from it. God is saying that the throat of the wicked has that smell, has the sweet smell of death. And when I say sweet, I mean the sour kind of sweet. It's disgusting, the smell. God says that those who are wicked, when they open their mouths to talk about how great they are and how wonderful they are and look at all they've done, the smell of death comes out of their mouth. Talk about bad breath. I'm serious. Talk about bad breath. The smell of death is coming out of their mouth. And God smells it and it's repulsive. And so He's going to destroy it. An open grave Verse 14, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. What's worse than cursing is bitterness. Because even a curse word just comes out of your mouth and just goes out. It's just a word. But the bitterness in your heart that caused that curse word to come out, that is what condemns you. And students, adults, we all sat under this. We still sit under this. If not for Christ, you would still have this condemnation and then you would die. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. How often we're ready to cause someone to bleed. I didn't plan this tonight to talk about this. This is in my notes. How often we're ready. Even I myself have times where I get angry or maybe even I'm upset by the world, the evil that's in this place. And I might even myself want to shed blood. I have to remember that God is the one who avenges. God is the one who judges. God is the one who condemns, not I. Verse 17, the way of peace they have not known. Do you like peace in your life? Because the wicked do. Now, you might be a Christian and still lack peace. You might have a struggle. But the wicked lack peace continuously. There is no peace for them. There is no hope for their soul. There is no presence of God in their life. They continuously do evil, and their throat, which is an open grave, spews out disgusting, nasty sin constantly. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. What's worse than having a throat like an open grave? What's worse than not seeking for God? What's worse than having a, a tongue of snake venom? What's worse than being full of bitterness? What's worse than shedding blood? What's worse than having no peace? What is worse is not fearing God. And remember, the word fear there does not mean, oh, I, sh I quake in, in, in terror. It means you quake in awe. Of him. The way you would feel standing at the Grand Canyon or a beautiful picturesque lake and mountains in the background. The way you would feel seeing something miraculously beautiful. That's the way you should feel before God. But people don't. 
They gesture at God. They reject God. They say he's not even real. Friedrich Nietzsche famously claimed that since man invented God, we could kill him and that he, he was dead. That God was dead. Well, Friedrich Nietzsche is dead, but God is not. God is still alive. And even the ones who rejected him, even the ones who turned from him, they could find mercy, salvation, and grace in their life if they would just turn to Jesus Christ. If they would just turn to him. But they don't. This law is what condemns you. Paul is saying that this was you and I before God, and God is fully justified. In destroying us. He's fully justified casting us into the lake of fire. He's fully justified to pour his wrath upon you. And there is no room for you or I to say, I didn't know. How can this be? I don't understand. You, you do know. You do know how it can be. And you do understand. Romans 1 says that you have no excuse for the sin in your life. The invisible attributes have gone out to the world. And we have no excuse to say to God, I didn't know what you wanted. I didn't know your will. Students, please don't live here, leave here. Not tonight. I mean leave here as in grow up. Don't leave here and go out and live a sinful, wicked life of torment and pain and then stand before God and have Him say to you, depart from me, I never knew you, because on that day you will say, I can't believe it. I thought I was a good person. And God will say, be gone. Get out. Leave my presence, because you never trusted in me. You never repented of your sin. You never came to me. You never believed. So be gone. I don't want you to stand there on that day. Because you sat in this little country church in your teenage years when everything was bulletproof and invincible, and you didn't care about the message of God. That's not what I want for you, students. That's not what I want for you at all. Romans chapter 8, go back there again, verse 1. There is no condemnation. This wrath that's hanging over you, this, this, this judgment upon your sin that is going to kill you, cause you to die eternally in the lake of fire, this condemnation only lifts for one person. It only lifts for one thing. It only lifts off of you by the mercy and the good kindness of Jesus Christ. You know the story. He goes to the cross, is murdered, stays in the grave, and then is resurrected. He was the sacrifice that took the sin that you and I deserved. He had the wrath of God poured out on him that you and I deserved. But he took it. He took it and he bore it. And he completed the work that God had sent him. So now, there is no condemnation if... If you are in Christ Jesus. And when I say in Christ Jesus, because that's the most important part here, in Christ Jesus, how do I know that I'm with Christ? How do I know that I've truly been saved? This is how you know, students. First John says that they will know us by our love. That we have love for one another. This is how you know if you are in Christ Jesus. If you repent of sin. And I don't mean, I'm sorry I got caught. Or I promise not to do it again. Until I do it again. I mean sin begins to be, abhor you. It begins to make you feel nasty. You begin to hate the things that the devil loves, that the world loves. You begin to hate the same things that God hates. You begin to hate gossip. You begin to hate rumors. You begin to hate talking bad about people. You begin to hate your pride. 
How do I know I'm in Christ Jesus? I will begin to repent. Then how do I know that I'm in Christ Jesus? How do I truly know? After repentance comes faith. God will put a peace in your heart that nothing else will be able to explain. Nothing else will even be able to touch the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of you. And then, not even it's not over, and then go to Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't submit again to sin after Jesus has set you free from it. But we're still not done. Still not done. We're thinking about Philippians 4. But the truth is, I kind of want to end up just in 1 John again. So turn to 1 John. This isn't even in my notes. I'm just feeling the presence of the Lord tonight. John chapter 3, verse 16. I'm sorry, 1 John. If I said John, 1 John. Little, little John to the right. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love. That He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love just in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. God does not just talk. God does not just say, oh, I'll save you, I'll take your sin away, and then not do it. God moves. God acts. He speaks in deeds and words and truth and His words become power. They have actions and they change lives. Students, it's time to stop talking. I don't mean being quiet during church. It's time to stop talking and it's time to start living as if Christ is actually inside of you. That means our words, our actions, our thoughts, our deeds. I'm not talking, I'm not telling you to be perfect. I'm not telling you you have to suddenly become this brand new person right away. Second Corinthians says you are a new creation. In fact, let's turn there. Let's go to Second Corinthians. I've totally gone off my notes now. I don't even know where my notes are. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 17. And we will probably end right here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, again, there's that phrase, in Christ. How do I really know that I'm in Christ? How do I really know that I am saved? Here's how you know. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. That's why I do what I do. Because I used to be an unrepentant, slack-jawed, thought-he-knew-everything big idiot. Quiet, Mom. (laughs) Don't start speaking the truth in here. And Christ brought to me reconciliation. 
And my testimony is not one of being saved out of alcohol abuse or drug use or living on the streets or living wild or shacking up. My testimony is not that. It's better than all of that. God saved me from my pride. He saved me from the most evil thing there is, the love of myself, and put in me instead the love of his people. How do you know you're in Christ tonight? You will love others not just yourself. Only God can do this, and if God is in you, you will start to do this. And when you start to love others, truly love others more than yourself, you will know what it means to have the presence of God in your life. Students, I know sometimes I stand up here, and I'm just the seed thrower. Interestingly, that the analogy of the seed thrower in the New Testament is not one you and I can understand, because we don't plant seeds that way. I'm not even a farmer. I don't plant seeds at all. I just reap the benefits at the grocery store. But farmers today use combines, and they plant nice, neat little rows, and they dig up the dirt beforehand. They go through with machines. They plant. They come back later with machines and draw up what has been sprouted. But the sower in the New Testament doesn't do that. He throws seeds into the open air, into the wind, and they're scattered. And they spread. And some lands on dry ground. Some lands on rocky ground. Some lands on ground that isn't good. But some, some seeds land in good ground, ground that God has reached his finger down and stirred up. Students, I don't know how many of you are good ground. Do you know how many kids have been in this room hearing me talk over the 10 years? And by the way, this Saturday is my 10th anniversary of doing this. I only say that to say that I, I have some authority. <laughs> However slight, I have some. Do you know how many kids have sat in here? Do you know what my ratio is? Please don't applaud this part. My ratio right now is like 10%. 10% of students in the youth group actually profess Christ in their adulthood. 90%, on average, 90% reject. Now, the majority of them don't actually tell me they've rejected Christ, but by their actions, that's what they've done. And I don't want that for you. I don't want you to just be another kid that had a great time at D-Now, had a great time at the football game, had a great time with me doing some event, doing some ministry, and then at some point, poof, it's all gone. I don't know how many of you are good ground. But I know that God is good. And I will continue to sow his gospel for as long as he sees fit. And one day, this is my hope. And this has also happened to me. Because it's been 10 years now. This has also happened to me. I've had students come back as adults, sometimes even parents. And they say, thank you. Because you and that church loved me. And I was evil. I was wicked. I was mean. But you love me. And students, we love you. And God loves you. But if you're not repentant, if you're not believing, God will pour out his wrath on you. He will pour out his condemnation upon you. So don't stay there. If you have any check in your heart tonight, if you have any inkling that I might not be in Christ Jesus, then I beg you. I beg you. Go to the one who saves. Repent of your sin and turn to him and be saved. I'd love for some of you to be here 10 years from now. Or it's still involved in church at least. It doesn't have to be this one. But students, without Christ, it's meaningless. Meaningless. I'd like to do something if we can. But I'm not sure it's possible. 
guys up for something? You want to try something? Can we, can we do this? Can we bow our heads and close our eyes? And I'm going to pray, but not just yet. I know this is almost an impossibility, but I'm going to ask for total silence. Just for a minute, because I want the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. I love the sound of babies in church. Lord, I call upon you tonight to reach down your holy hand and stir the ground here who do not yet believe and have not yet repented of sin, I ask God that you would save them from wickedness. Lord, for those in here who have repented and who do believe, God, I pray that you would continue to stir them up to good works and to love you and love their brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray tonight that you would speak to our hearts and let us leave here, Lord, in joy, almost ready to dance in our worship of you. But Lord, most important, let us have turned to your Son, repentant of sin, trusting in Him for salvation, and worshiping Him as He truly deserves. Lord, I thank you for this night. I ask you to bless this food we're about to eat. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.